Welcome to the Growth Gap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba, Managing Partner of Growth Cap. In this episode, we chat with Ben Weinberg and Josh Elzer of Susquehanna Growth Equity, a leading growth equity firm founded in 2006 in affiliation with Susquehanna International Group. Ben and Josh focus primarily on direct private company investments in the software space. We cover quite a bit of ground in this conversation, from the genesis of Susquehanna International Group, now a global financial powerhouse, and the entrepreneurial mindset that drives the organization, to the founding of the growth equity practice, and to the current dynamics at play in the growth equity market. Both Ben and Josh graduated from Yale University with a bachelor's degree in economics. We hope you enjoy the show. Ben and Josh, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation. You know, as mentioned, I first got to know Susquehanna probably several years ago uh, when I met uh, Scott. At that time, I was over at B of A Merrill Lynch, and the Susquehanna Growth Fund was in its earlier days, but certainly well on its way. But great to spend the time with you here. Maybe what we could do for our audience is start off with a little bit of uh, background, you know, on the firm, it, it might even be helpful to give, to the extent you can, give a little bit of background to uh, the overall uh, Susquehanna, just to give people uh, some context. First of all, thank you for uh, for inviting us, RJ. We really appreciate it. We're excited to, to talk with you. This is Josh. So, Susquehanna International Group is a really, it, it's a really fascinating story. It's uh, you know a bootstrap business here in in Ballackinwood, just outside of Philadelphia. It's a, it's a company that's been grown over 30 plus years now. Uh, unlike many of its peers in the financial services world, is still owned entirely by its original founders, who, who started the business out of college up in SUNY Binghamton. What they saw was they were really smart math probability guys, and they found interesting ways to apply their skill sets. They started out in the world of poker and, and horse betting, et cetera. And, and, uh, and I guess maybe their, their parents weren't happy enough with what they were doing. So they, they had to transition, figure a way to, to apply those same skills to something, uh, something more professional. What they found was in the, the, you know, the financial services market worked very similarly to the, to the, to the other games they were playing with poker, where you're making decisions with limited information and you're playing the odds. That's what they, they realized they could apply that to the financial services world. And, and they started making markets. So matching, uh, you know, buyers and sellers of derivatives. Back then it was manual, it was a manual business 30 plus years ago and they realized that you know spreads would com- compress over time. Uh, they needed to do more in volume and they realized that technology was going to be the driver of their business. And they were one of the successful firms able to invest. I mean they invested a lot of money, a lot of people, a lot of time and effort into technology. And what it did for them is it transformed their business. They became a huge winner in that market. And as the spreads compressed, they made it up in volume. They become a, a huge company, 2,500 people, and very, very successful entrepreneurs. So why is that relevant? It's relevant to us because, number one, Susquehanna Growth Equity, we invest their money. So we don't fundraise. That that has a lot of down, uh, you know, trickle-down effects. Uh, it affects everything from how we spend our time, the pressures on our entrepreneurs, the types of deals we can do. And it's really a defining characteristic for us. Not only that, we're backed by founders, which is unusual uh, in this world. So it really permeates the culture. It kind of has a lot of effects on us. 
and it's really it's been a great partnership over the last 13 years, so 13 years now um, that we've been working with them. And it, it's just really it's it's really a, one of our main differentiating factors is our relationship with Sig. Incredible partners, very supportive, and, uh, and we've essentially taken the same thesis of investing in technology into these these markets that were back then less tech driven. Uh, we're applying that same model across uh, far you know, a, a number of different verticals today through uh, through a dedicated growth equity investment strategy. I'll just build on that a little bit. I think I think what that means is you know the founders of Susquehanna are still very engaged in their business. I think and they built a category leader in, in what's kind of been a, a market characterized by very long term sustained growth. I think that's really what we're looking for in our businesses is kind of finding companies with strong and, and in the vast majority of cases, founder-led teams uh, and in markets uh, in markets that you can unlock long-term growth. And we have we are built uh, to have that kind of patience. Uh, we're not investing out of, out of a fund where we have uh, retirees, pensioners, and others that are investing in us. So we are money-on-money money oriented as opposed to IRR oriented as a firm. And we are uh, geared to, uh, to have the patience to be able to ride market uh, in what we believe are going to be great long-term penetration stories. Uh, just fascinating how the, the founders of um, you know Susquehanna International Group decided to get into growth equity investing. Um, I mean, I guess when your organization is throwing off you know substantial a substantial amount of cash, you can decide how to allocate that capital. You can allocate it you know back into your business. You can obviously take it personally and decide how you want to you know manage that money, or you could do something like set up. You know, a private equity operation within or tangential to your existing business. Curious more into the the thought process of the founders. If if, you, if there's more color to it. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things we we talk a lot about within Susquehanna is uh, the the way that the founders think. They they actually hire a lot of people out of school, and they know that people have great ideas. It's not always people who have the longest tenure there. And so what they've gotten really good at doing is giving people within the organization an opportunity to build, to essentially be an entrepreneur, to try a new investment strategy, to try a new, a new type of trade. And they give them the capital to do so because they understand risk and, and they understand how to take risk. What happens is, you know, the ones that are successful, they're, they're, they're almost like seed funding these, these uh, groups within Susquehanna. And if they're successful, then they give them more money and they grow and they hire people. And if they're unsuccessful, then they go, it didn't work out. So uh, they, you know, they've been doing this for a long time within their core business. And some of those groups have grown into the largest, what they call them pods within Susquehanna. And they've also done this with different investment strategies like ours. You know, we also invest in, they have groups that invest in China. They have groups that invest that do debt versus equity. You know, one of the things I think they really figured out is let people who know, their domain, their strategy, focus on that versus, you know, a lot of family offices kind of get tied up where they have the same investors doing multiple strategies. All we do is invest in growth stage technology, you know, software and, and data companies. It's all we do. So it, it kind of helps keep those the lanes clear. And, and, and to your point, RJ, this has been here, it is very entrepreneurial, right? These are, these are first generation entrepreneurs. And I think that if you know, we had a CIO and hired the CIO from from other other large asset managers. They'd probably think about the world in a in a different way. But um, I think it's you know, I, I think it's a matter of finding finding great strategies, finding great businesses, and and uh, and letting them run. But 
you know, can't can't speak can't speak for uh, the overall kind of grand mastery behind the asset allocation, but but it's you know, I think it's very very true to an entrepreneurial vision here. Well, I think this is a good um, lead in to you know how maybe you found your way, uh, both each of you found your way to Susquehanna, or maybe they found you. If we could talk about your personal backgrounds, you know what you focus on within the within the fund. Yeah, Ben Weinberg. Um, been to Susquehanna now for the past five years. Started my career actually <laughs> have uh, the misfortune of having having graduated from undergrad and business school, kind of headlong into recession. So undergrad in 2000, went to Wall Street in time to see uh, to see a lot of uh, carnage there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at Salman Brothers, which became uh, Citigroup very quickly. I was there in their Latin America franchise and later in their TMT franchise. Before going to business school in 2006. Uh, and then graduated there uh, in 2008, headlong into, uh, I started my job at Element Partners a month before they're closing their, their uh, $600 million fund and three weeks before, um, before the Lehman Brothers. So headlong into kind of the second, the second great calamity of, of the 21st century. So great timing. It's great, great timing <laughs> and, and it certainly impacts how you look at the world. Element Partners, my first time on the buy side as a technology-oriented fund, actually um, focused more on industrial end markets, and that that frames kind of how I look at the world. When I went from Element Partners and joined here uh, in 1314, I brought a focus on vertical markets, uh, but vertical markets with a view was kind of more generally oriented towards what I call slow adopting or highly fragmented markets, uh, and looking at the adoption of new technologies in these segments. So whether that's trucking, supply chain, kind of deep back office inside the enterprise, made investment in, in a company called Order My Gear, which which brings technology and kind of the Shopify generation to to mom and pop decorators and and embroiderers. So finding nooks and crannies and sizable nooks and crannies where we can where where technology is, has not been adopted and can find accelerated adoption, where you have the right kind of simple and and low friction solution set, and we that's a that's a concept that we've been able to replicate across a, a number of markets, taking that within within kind of vertical software as well as horizontally across you know financial, uh, HR, and then other other uh, other horizontal models areas where that where that same that same kind of uh, you know formula that same that same formula is present. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I actually I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up, and I think my parents were really excited about that. Uh, I think they were actually pretty disappointed when I went to finance, can't blame them. I think I changed when they saw my first paycheck, but I actually, you know, I got started out investing in real estate, uh, so not technology, but, um, you know, started a fund investing in you know, buying essentially rental properties, running them out back in 2005, 2006. And that was actually whenever technology kind of started invading the, the prop tech space and actually ended up being inspiration for, for one of the areas I spent a lot of my time. But I joined Susquehanna as an intern out of Yale, and I've been, that was in 2010, and I've been here ever since. So going from intern to analyst to associate to VP to director, and I've kind of seen the the firm over over many years, kind of the different shades, how we've kind of changed and and grown, and um, so that that's kind of been my background was sort of starting out, you know, and investing in, in real estate, seeing the opportunity for technology and, and kind of come into, you know, I spent a lot of time in prop tech uh, as well as HR tech, a couple other areas, but um, I don't think, uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting to have that background, uh, you know, investing in, in that asset class without the technology background. 
sort of an inspiration for going into this world. You know, from both of you, it would be great to hear your thoughts on on how you think, you know, your firm has been able to succeed in a really competitive environment. It really goes back to our founder, Amir Goldman, who started the group 13 years ago. And, you know, he he developed an investment thesis with, you know, a couple of different, uh, a couple of different bullet points. And what's really interesting is we actually went back and re- revisited it, uh, you know, as recently as a few months ago. And, you know, maybe one or two things have changed here over the years. Uh, but for the most part, the original thesis stands pretty true. I mean, we, we look at, you know, capital efficient recurring revenue businesses with, you know, defensible models and, and good retention. And I think that, the, the one of the big differentiation points for us is the way that we are set up because number one you can be a really good picker of companies like we like to think that we're we're choosing entrepreneurs to back and in some ways we are but you also have to remember like the entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs are really choosing us mm-hmm. and we think that that's been that's been a, that's where we kind of have an edge because of the way we're structured because of the types of entrepreneurs that choose us are the ones that don't want to be tied to a specific timeline. They haven't, uh, they haven't necessarily raised gobs and gobs of capital. Uh, they love the, they appreciate the flexibility. And, and to be honest, a lot of the, the entrepreneurs we're backing have shunned traditional growth equity because of all the strings that are attached. So I think, I don't know, if I had to attribute it to one thing, I would say that there's a certain class of entrepreneurs who think a little differently, who have been choosing us, uh, and we think that they've outperformed. We are selling commodities. <laughs> like it's the most commoditized thing that that uh, money. It, it's just capital. It's a question of who who can bring it on the best terms. But but even even so, I think founders today in in, in the the growth equity world, especially when you're pitching the deals that we're pitching, which are minority deals, it's not only you know bringing capital on the best terms, but also the person who who you're going to sit across the table from for an indefinite period of time. Are they going to let you do the things you want to do? Are they going to uh, you know what kind of pressures they're going to place on you? And I think that you know what we bring is I think just a pretty different culture, right? And I've I've been on been in a traditional uh, traditional LP based private equity model, and this one here. One of my mentors always said that you know private equity firms aren't firms; they're confederacies. You know, it's a confederation of individual partners doing what they want to do, and they get into a room once a week and duke it out, and the strongest person ultimately gets gets what they want. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a pretty dysfunction view of the world. <laughs> but but I think that you know the, 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 I wouldn't be repeating it if I didn't think there was more than a grain of truth to it. Um, and I think that you need to have uh, kind of real binding cultural culture, strength, tradition to kind of bring a bring a firm together. And you know, I think in many ways, having having the success of of uh, of Susquehanna to look to and kind of founder-led success, compounding after 30 years, and then now for us in you know 50, over 50 companies and and um, you know still being 85 plus percent founder-led, seeing we kind of know we know what we're looking for, we know what we're not looking for, and I think that allows us to differentiate for for like Josh said, the the founders who are who are looking for a partner in their mold. It's not going to fit for everyone, but we we, we believe there's there, there's there's enough out there to keep us busy. How much rests on that entrepreneur or founder when when you're assessing the company? It's not so much it's not so much the founder personally. Like when you get into a room, you you're going to have a reaction to them one way or the other. But I think it's more the the, the fingerprints of 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 
the decisions that that founder has made, how they built their business, how they funded their business, the types of people they brought in, uh, and the and the strategic decisions they've made. And I think those ultimately are where the where the rubber meets the road. And I do think you know much like any any business out there, any any investment firm, we have our heat map of what makes uh, what makes a solid investment. And I think that uh, it's that history of decision making, finding founders who are going to be you know, capital efficient, who are going to be aggressive when, when the time is called for, to be humble. And I think that, and, and, and so, so I think you've got those kind of broad financial metrics of a business that, that are indicative of good decision-making, strong market opportunity. But I think getting in the room, you have the, the interpersonal dynamics and finding somebody who's very humble and who's able to, you know, reason through the, the successes and the challenges they've had. And, and also be realistic and optimistic about about what's before them, what's before the business. And also, at the end of the day, we're all optimists, and, and and we all think we're great. But you know, greatness doesn't doesn't allow you to to, to build buildings. It's, it's great teams, and I think that um, you know it, it's those those kind of soft skills we're looking for when we're in the room. But I think there's they're they're both external and internal uh, kind of triangulation steps that you've got to getting there uh, as you form a view. I mean, you, you ask an interesting question. I'm thinking through our portfolio. I mean, there are, there are obviously entrepreneurs or founders we think, and we're just like, wow, you know, we, we you know, they, they just really fit with the way we think about the world and the people we, we probably follow to the end of the world, uh, like the, you know, the Colin, Colin Day from iSims and, and uh, Ken Lin from Credit Karma. I mean, they are, they're, they're entrepreneurs where we, we do, we spend time with them and it does feel like we know. And, and we do the work around the business, what they're building, but, you know, the entrepreneurs are really strong. Yes, another interesting question, which was, you know, are there are there times when you know it's not, not a fit? I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we all, you walk into a room and, and you know pretty quickly it's not going to be a fit. So, but that, I think that's always the case. And, and right. I'm sure vice versa, you know, I'm sure that sometimes we walk in, we're not the right people. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, you hear the cliche all the time, these it's a marriage, right? Like mm-hmm. we're going to be the same hopefully rowing in the same boat in the same direction for many years. So um, that, that fit does matter. Got it. And then, you know, maybe switching gears a little bit, taking a more macro view of the growth equity universe, you know, it seems like, you know, growth equity has been the flavor of the day going on a number of years now. You see some of the big private equity firms, you know, developing their own uh, growth equity uh, arm and then you get spin outs, you know, guys that have been with the big firms. I, you know, it seems like almost every every other week I, I hear of a new, you know, two, three person team that's spun out and has or is raising their own fund. Just got one yesterday over text. So how do you think about this growth equity universe? Is it big enough where you can have a ton of various firms out there competing? For deals, or 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 is it you know do do we have enough? Are there just simply so many companies out there that it doesn't matter? You can keep having you know new firms pop up every week, and you know and they'll still be able to find great companies. What's your view overall? Yeah, I, I wish I could translate it into into a a total carrying capacity of kind of AUM that can sustainably be deployed into this sector. But I think there's 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 a share shifting happening out there. You've got kind of enormous amounts of uh, enormous kind of enterprise value that's encrusted in in traditional services companies that is being uh, that is being transferred into the software world. 
and you know, for every dollar, maybe 50 50 cents of those dollars are going to be of that enterprise value be transferred into the into the um, into the software world, and I think the collective software market cap. And I'm I'm talking outside of the Facebook, Amazon, Google, because I view that as those aren't services companies; those are those are those are kind of retailers. But I'm talking more about you know the the word processing body shop that's across the street from me in the building uh, on City Line Avenue here in Philadelphia. Um, and there are thousands of those firms in the United States and around the world. And um, and there's a huge amount of enterprise value that's going to be that's going to be created in in in, uh, in making those firms a lot more efficient in, in what they do and really just changing the structures of how those how those firms execute what they do on a day to day basis. I think what we see all the time, right? Like if we we take you know the deals that that we were looking at in 2012 and the deals we're looking at today. At the end of the day, the companies look very similar, right? There. $30 million revenue businesses, $20, $30 million revenue businesses that in 2012 were looking for a 15% liquidity round and looking for a little bit of primary capital so they can go take the next turn. And today that same business is looking for a 75% recapitalization. I think that private equity, the private equity universe has gotten much more comfortable investing in deeming kind of, quote, maturity. Uh, at a much lower stage than they were than they were uh, a, a number of years ago, and part of that's born of the fact they have much a lot more money burning a hole in their pockets, and part of it's a, part of it's a realization that a twenty million dollar SaaS business is not as fragile as a twenty million dollar service business that had um, you know that had eight customers, all kinds of uncertainties in the market, volatile labor costs, and so on. So I think maturity happens at a very different point than it used to. So there's a lot, a lot of enterprise value that's being created in technology businesses and entrepreneurs that say, boy, I'm, I'm, you know, at $40 million of value, I'm good. I don't need to have $200 million of value in my pocket. And, uh, and I think it's appropriate in many ways from a risk-sharing perspective for that, for that value to be held in institutional hands as opposed to individual hands. And, um, and I think we've seen, we've seen a lot of it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, you, you probably have a clear sense of the AUM created. Uh, or, or, or invested behind growth strategies has been staggering, yeah. but um, you know I'm I'm not convinced that that we're wildly oversaturated. Yeah, it's, I mean software is taking share. The deals are bigger. There's there's lots of dollars up for grabs. I mean the other thing, the other dynamic here is you know companies are staying private longer, yeah. and a lot of the equity value accretion is happening in the private markets, not in the public markets. You can debate over why it's happening, whether there's overregulation or whatever happened, but I mean there are half the number of public companies than there were what 15 years ago. So now you have all these companies that are that have a huge that are taking share from traditional industries, moving it towards a software business model, and they're able to stay private and get access to capital as they grow. Instead of going public when they're 30 million, they stay private until they're 300 million. Yeah. 500 million of revenue. All that value is being created, and it's getting, it, it, you know, it's accruing to the investors and the owners and, and the management team members rather than the public markets. So I think that's opened up a lot of space as well. Yeah. yeah I think I think about your business, and you know, I'm just just kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember I remember when I first first heard of GrowCap, right? And it was like, wow, this is this is a media outlet focused on 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 the growth asset class. Like that seems very narrow and now you serve an enormous asset class and yeah. you're you're like a, you're you're a very meaningful voice for for something that's got a huge number of lps investors and 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 ceos attracted to it so i think it's it's uh it's kind of an incredible it's been an incredible evolution kind of you know much like anything kind of in hindsight it makes a lot of sense but all hard hard, hard to predict from 2013. 
you know, certainly this whole category, and I know, you know, Cambridge Associates puts out their piece on, you know, the three three different kind of segments of, you know, buyouts, venture, and, and growth equity. And growth equities tended to, I don't know what the latest is, but they tended to, you know, outperform, uh, not by a huge amount, but, you know, it's it's a, an asset class that's been both growing in, in AUM as well as, you know, improving in, in performance and returns. Maybe we could close out with what each of you are most focused on, most interested in, and, and are, I guess, most excited about, I guess, in, in the future. I, I mentioned this earlier. I think, uh, you know, real estate is one of the verticals I'm spending a lot of time in. Uh, you know, investments in Boomtown build out, uh, one that we're going to be announcing here in a couple of weeks. And, and I think, you know, real estate, everyone kind of points and says, yeah, obviously it's the largest asset class in the world. It's worth more, more than all the stocks and bonds combined. Uh, you know, three and a half trillion contributed to the U.S. GDP, you know, in a year. It's a huge market and, and it's attracting investors too. I mean, I think there's $10 billion last year invested in, um, in prop tech companies globally half of that in the U.S. So it's it's an area that's really attracts a lot of people. There's obvious reasons why it's a huge market. and But it's one of the last to adopt technology. You know, software is taking market share from other markets. Like this, there's no exception here in real estate. And when you have these types of numbers, these size of markets, like that's a really exciting place to be. So we're spending a lot of time there with the world is changing for everyone in real estate, project management, facilities management, workflow tools, marketplace and listings, like, just across the board, marketing technology, access to data and analytics, it's, it's transforming life for the whole life cycle from owners to brokers to tenants to contractors. Like, it's such an exciting place to be. That's a, you know, we're, we're interested in digitizing workflows and increasing transparency in that world. And you know, when you move the needle a little bit on markets that large, you know, it ends up being a, a pretty uh, a pretty big movement. So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. Ben? And, and I, I think, uh, like, like I said earlier, for, for me, vertical software uh, is, is, is an area of great focus. And, and looking at that, especially with the extension of kind of where, where vertical market software goes. I think, you know, we've gone from the Salesforce IPO in 2003, and we're taking over huge segments of broad corporate workflows. You know, the, the, the world of, of, uh, of new software innovation has gotten more and more finely sliced. I still think that within those within those uh, the those fine slices, we've got enormous opportunities for for not just software but payment payment uh, and supply chain uh, applications. I think that, that finding these network businesses that are able to integrate elements of supply chain, elements of of, uh, of financial technology and kind of core functional software, there continue to be really interesting um, opportunities and. Uh, and interesting, unexpected opportunities in those in those areas. And then I, I'd say the second place, kind of from outside of a deal perspective, I think you know that I that I'm spending time focusing is you know around this question of you know, as we SGE scale, I think you know we we try to think of ourselves as a firm. We articulate values and and uh, and and an operating mindset is kind of distinct, I think, from many many other uh, investors out there. As we get bigger, and we have have gotten bigger, going from investing, you know, 100 to 150 million dollars a handful of years ago to now investing, you know, two to 300 plus million dollars a year, 
there's a question of how we build and scale in a way that's culturally consistent for us, making sure that we you know, continue to enable founders and, uh, and kind of build around our teams and continue to get that message out of being, you know, being what we, uh, you know, the high aspiration, but the Berkshire Hathaway of this world, finding great franchises, continuing to build, build those franchises, being able to, to create, uh, to create a lot of value for ourselves and our partners over, over, uh, over, over very long periods of time in, in franchise leading businesses. Yeah, well, you know, cer certainly, um, you know, some of the points of differentiation that you, uh, you both articulated, you know, throughout this uh, conversation, I, I think will, will, will really be taken well by, you know, the entrepreneurs and, and CEOs in our, in our audience, certainly the, the flexibility in how you invest and not being confined to the typical constraints of a of a PE firm or, or a formalized uh, fund. Really appreciate the time, uh, Ben and Josh. You know, look forward to, to chatting some more. Likewise. Th thank you for, for everything you do, and thanks for having us today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much.